How has the Opportunity Zones program opened up community development to a different class of investors? And how will revitalization projects impact OZ communities? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. And today I'm on site at the COASIS Coalition Opportunity Zone Super Conference in Dallas. And in person with me is Jill Homan, president of Washington, D.C.-based real estate development, investment, and advisory firm, Javelin 19. Jill, thanks for joining me and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jimmy, for having me and good to see you. Absolutely. In person. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to meet you in person. I know we've been emailing back and forth for the past few days, so it's good to be here with you. And so... To start, just tell me a little bit about Javelin 19. When did you start it, and what services do you provide to investors? So Javelin 19, uh, we founded it about eight years ago, focused on real estate development and investments. And uh, back in January of 2018, once the Opportunity Zone provisions were included in the legislation, um, we really thought that's going to be very instrumental in terms of um, positively impacting communities, but also providing investors with um, really uh, exciting uh, and tax incentive for them to invest in. So we decided to focus full-time on Opportunity Zones. So we've been focused full-time on Opportunity Zones since January of 2018. And what that um, means is we have real estate projects that we're doing ourselves. So we're co-developing a purpose-built student housing project um, in Baltimore. And we're also working with um, primarily with single family offices on helping them allocate capital using this incentive. Um, so it's very exciting and we're um, really pleased to be part of this new community. Good, so you mentioned family offices. Do you have a lot of high net worth investors as well or is it, is it primarily family offices that you're dealing with? It's primarily family offices and I expect uh, with the next set of regulations, um, should they allow for these multi-asset funds to really be able to operate more efficiently. Um, I expect there to be more efficient ways to raise capital, which will help the traditional high net worth investor be able to use this incentive. Good. Well, I want to ask you more about those regulations in a few minutes here, but first, uh, if we could back up just a minute, and could you tell me a little bit more about your personal background and, and, and how you came to start Javelin 19 and, and where you're Basically, give me a sense of how your career led you to where you are today. Sure. Um, and so I, I say I've been in real estate 15 years, but I've been um, politically active for 20 years. Um, and so my previous work experience included uh, working on Capitol Hill for then Congressman Bob Ehrlich prior to him becoming governor of Maryland. Uh, so I was a legislative assistant for him and press secretary and uh, went, to <clears throat> went to grad school uh, where I did a master's of public policy and an MBA at Duke University. I'm very disappointed with the recent loss. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> yes. Um, so, and I, I looked squarely at, at issues of uh, gentrification and development um, and 
heavily spent uh, a lot of time on focus on finance and real estate. Um, so my master's project there at Duke was looking at what the impact of small to medium revitalization projects are on the residents. So looked at when you have a project that goes into a neighborhood that hasn't otherwise had investment, how does that impact the surrounding neighborhoods? And, and does it displace the residents or does it actually attract follow-on capital and provide um, uh, great public benefits with reducing crime, reducing poverty? Um, and what I found, just on a side note, is as with many things, the results are mixed, and it depends um, in part on, on how engaged the private sector and public sector are working together. So following um, work in, in politics and policy, then um, that led to really uh, working in the private sector and real estate because I was very passionate about changing communities, but also wanted to participate more in the private sector side, so actually do um, and, and act in so I saw that working with a real estate developer. So worked with a DC-based developer and then was able to raise some capital and go out on their own with Jet 119. Good. And so just to kind of round trip it, so what's uh, most exciting about Opportunity Zones for, for me personally is that it's finally the opportunity to really bring in um, the policy, the politics, and the real estate and business experience. Um, and then you add in the impact component, uh, which is really why I got into real estate to begin with. It almost sounds like the Opportunity Zones program was ideally suited for, for your experience. Yeah, and it's, it's just something I'm very passionate about, and um, my family just wishes I'd quit talking about it so much. So. <laughs> I get the same thing from my family yeah, sometimes, too, yeah, there you go. with the Opportunity Zones all the time in my house. Um, <laughs> so, it, so you're here at the COASIS Coalition Opportunity Zone Super Conference this week, and you're representing Javelin 19, and you're on a speaking panel here, I know. but. You're also here to introduce the conference's keynote speaker, Dan Kowalski. He is the counselor to Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. And you mentioned earlier, just a minute ago, that you have experience working on Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so tell me, as you're somebody inside the Beltway with relationships with some of these regulators, what's the mood in Washington regarding Opportunity Zones? What are you hearing? Yeah, and so I'd first like to say what's really interesting with this uh, tax incentive is that it's well received from both sides of the aisle. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm, you know, my background's in Republican politics. My sister's a Democrat. We still get along and love each other. Um, and in fact, she helps me on, um, on on certain things with work. So she's terrific. But. And so I think it, that's important to note. And, and so it's, um, and you can see that in really two ways. Number one is the first aspect of this incentive was the governors designated the zones. And so whether you're a Republican or Democratic governor, you had the opportunity to pick the areas in which you um, set up the environment to attract capital to these areas. So that's, first of all, um, I, I think a, a, an interesting point. Um, and, and then secondly, what you see are a number of um, governors and also mayors that are really touting this incentive. By way of example, um, in Washington, D.C., the mayor, Muriel Bowser, used Opportunity Zones as um, one of the main points that she made in her annual State of the District speech. And, and she referred to it as an incentive um, and, and talked about the Democratic senators um, who helped advance this incentive. And you see the same thing on the Republican side. And so I think it's um, rare that there is a policy and, and not to mention a legislation that has the ability to be well received. And I think that's when you get into the implementation. 
Um, and so when I speak with investors, it doesn't matter whether they um, support um, candidates on the right side or the left side of the aisle, what I've found is they overwhelmingly are excited about allocating capital using this incentive. Um, so I think the, the mood as it relates to opportunity zones is, is really one of um, a lot of excitement. Um, and then there's also a, a significant interest in understanding uh, what's happening on the ground. So how are deals being done and what is then the impact? And I think that's where you have the data piece that's ultimately going to come in. How can we have um, some sort of data component being included in, um, in the regulations without burdening uh, the funds uh, to the degree that this really only works for the very, very large funds. Um, because really, the policymakers need the data in order to understand how, or how this is working and, and what improvements they can make. Um, so I think that's going to be a really interesting component uh, down the road. Yeah, that's interesting you brought that up. Uh, the, the data component, I've talked with a few guests on my podcast recently in the last few weeks about that very topic, how the data component was originally in the, in the Investing in Opportunity Act, uh, but was stripped out of the final version of the bill. Mm -hmm. we, we had some speakers at the IRS hearing in, in February request some sort of data component uh, to be included, like the IRS should be tracking this or the funds themselves should be tracking it. What's your take on that and do you think that uh, some sort of level of uh, transactional data or a reporting requirement will eventually become part of the regulations? So first of all, the, the reporting requirement um, was taken out in part because of a, um, how this legislation was passed. And so there was some procedural mean, uh, reasons why it was taken out. Um, but secondly, I think some level of data is important um, because you just need to understand how this policy or whether this policy um, is working. And so what I expect is um, a third round of regulations to come out maybe towards the end of the year that will include uh, a data component. Um, but what the specific data, um, what actually is required, um, I, I don't know. But some of the data that is, uh, is already readily available. And so, you know, I referenced my master's project that I did. I, I used really census data and did what's considered a longitudinal um, survey where I looked at um, a, the census in 1990, looked at the census in 2000 and, and um, the event that happened was in the middle 2005. So you could see uh, what the potential impact is of a project. And so there's data out there that's already readily available. So it's what data above and beyond what's readily available do we need? And these funds already are doing some level of reporting on their 8996 forms that talk about them complying with the 90% asset test. And so then it's, I think data that is tied more to the community uh, might be something that would be more beneficial than simply um, this is how we invested and this is how we complied with the 90% asset test. Because yeah, I think at, at the end of the day, the, the data that's important, at least to you know, the, the regulators in Washington, is, is the program fulfilling its promise, which is basically that it's going to lift some of these communities out of economic distress. So they, they want to measure, I think they want to measure at least, correct me if I'm wrong, they want to measure to ensure that it's not displacing too many community residents, because mm -hmm. that would be, I think, a failure if, if all these opportunity zones end up just pushing out mm -hmm. the community residents that they're intending to, to, uh, to help out. 
Well, and I think some of the ways that they go about not um, in preventing that is in part this substantial improvement test. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard um, on the multifamily side to take an existing multifamily um, that's leased and meet the substantial improvement test. The property would have to be in, in complete disrepair because right. for every dollar of basis, you need a dollar of improvement excluding the land. Um, and so by, by virtue of that, you, um, there'll be, it will be highly unlikely that a fund will come in and purchase an existing multifamily property and be able to just substantially renovate that existing multifamily property. That being said, um, you, a fund could come in, buy it, and upzone it, um, and, and and be able to if you had the additional density. Um, but those situations are the ones that you know that I don't think meet the spirit of the legislation, which is you know buying and pushing people out. Right. On the project that we're working on, I, I jokingly say we're gentrifying cars because we're buying a parking lot, and we're dis displacing the cars that would have parked on the parking lot. Um, but the City and, and, and the university are very excited about our project because we're um, bringing an investment to a very important part of um, a campus in Baltimore. And so they're very excited about this emplacement and despite of the fact they're losing a, a few dozen parking spots, but we're putting parking in the building. So it all works out. Yeah, does that, that's, the, uh, that's the student housing project yes. in Baltimore? Yeah. Good. Um, getting back to that IRS hearing that, mm -hmm. that I mentioned back in February, you were one of the uh, speakers there. You testified in front of the IRS and you discussed, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, I know a couple of the points that you brought up were the, um, the, the short 180 day time mm -hmm. period for investors uh, that, that, that kind of presents a challenge of a tight turnaround, uh, specifically for, for your clients, the in investors and, and family offices. Uh, you also touched upon original use of, of vacant property. And I think the comment letter that you had submitted had a few more points. Did I did I get that yeah, right? And, and exactly. can you could you could you summarize your key points? Yeah, for, for so my it was listeners? a really interesting hearing, um, and it was funny. I was talking to my family about how excited I was going, and I don't think they just couldn't wrap their head. Are you excited about going to an IRS? <laughs> why are you Why are you excited about speaking in front of the IRS? Yeah, yeah. I thought it was, it was cool. It will thank you, and I did too. It was, but it was this you know full room, pack room, and they had to turn people away. There was so much interest in the topic, and that um, usually probably doesn't usually happen no, at an IRS hearing. No, where they turn people away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but to your point, um, one of the points I made had to do with the different treatment of um, when the 180-day clock starts the different treatment between um, partnerships and individuals. So if you recognize the gain as an individual, your 180 days starts from the date of the gain. If you recognize the gain as a partnership, the 180 days starts from the end of the partnership taxable year. And so my point was I wasn't um, arguing over the 180 days. What, what I was stating is, um, first of all, you have um, a, you're really pushing people to want to organize as partnerships or even reorganize prior to realizing the gain. And, and, and so that is somewhat arbitrary. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's fantastic what they did, recognizing that individuals um, will, if they're in a partnership, um, may not receive the K-1, and so they may lose the bulk of the 180 days just waiting to find out about the gain. So. Um, so my comment is not to criticize um, them about starting the end of the taxable year for partnerships. I thought that was very insightful. It's just about um, now your, your people are going to be incented to organize those partnerships. 
Secondly, to buy them more time. Correct. Right, to buy them until the end of the, the year. Yes, right. and so secondly, you have a, have the situation where um, we were, um, so while some people were able to transact, um, a, a lot of folks in the community were really waiting until the first round of guidance, which didn't happen until October 19th. So you had um, what is about three quarters of the year um, that there wasn't a lot of activity. And so if you as an individual had your gain, you know, really January through June or July, um, you were at a disadvantage because your um, tax advisors and your attorneys uh, were giving you advice that was pretty much, you know, you need to wait, we need to see more information about this. And so that really 2018 was a year spent um, getting up to speed. So all that being said, my comment was, um, let's treat, at least for 2018, let's treat individuals the same as partnerships and allow them to start the same on the same day, which is the end of 2018. And, and so in that way, somebody who could have had a gain in April as an individual would now have a chance to utilize this incentive. And so there's um, many more transactions that are happening. So that was one of the points. Um, and that makes sense, because they didn't know what what the uh, what the rules of the game they were playing were really at yeah. that point. And we, we still don't know the final rules, but at least we're a little bit farther along. Exactly, and that was actually a comment um, that the IRS, um, uh, the folks that were um, running the hearing, they were very interested in, asked several follow-up questions about that. Um, and then the other, one other comment you mentioned was original use, mm -hmm. um, and so that's, really we're waiting on guidance on what is the definition of original use and there seems to be from the industry a, a lot of coalescing around the idea that you could have an existing building and to the extent the building um, and so an existing building is not an original use but if a building has been vacant for x number of years that building should be considered originally used um, and so what what i and others have advocated for is that it should fall somewhere between one to two years uh, and, and we can all think of uh, places and communities where you have vacant buildings and you just cannot substantially improve the building because the rents just don't support it. Mm -hmm. But it, that building's vacant. And so if there was just a lower threshold to getting that building uh, up and leased, I think there could attract, um, you could attract uh, businesses and others to operate and in, in, in lease that building. So that was uh, another point, and I would just say one other uh, point, larger point that I made, had to do with uh, what is considered a permitted exception. So that is a category which is if you fall out of compliance with the 90% asset test, um, but you have a good reason, that should be allowed. And so the the legislation allows for that, and they have this provision permitted exception, but it's right. just very general. And how is it defined then? Exactly. And who defines it? What what is what is a uh, what, what would be a good reason? Basically? Yeah, and, and so that's what what you know nobody wants to go first. You know, testing your I have a good reason, but you know I'd rather you Jimmy go first, and <laughs> then course, you know, and then I let you test, yeah. and then I um, refine my response. But what what I um, advocated for was um, this concept of similar to REIT law, which is. Uh, to the extent I become out of compliance as a REIT, uh, allow me the opportunity to use best business practices to put myself back into compliance to so this kind of cure period concept, um, and don't uh, don't put a penalty or hit me with a penalty. 
And so that was something that I was uh, um, advocating for, which is to the extent I become out of compliance with my 90% asset test, uh, allow me first to get back into compliance before I'm really hit with a penalty. Right. And so it's this idea of using really um, best business practices or um, you know some sort of standard in order to put yourself back into compliance. That makes sense. Yeah, and, yeah. and you can all think about just things that come up. You know, you in in DC we've had uh, cases where. Um, Certain things are um, somebody appeals, and, and before you are able to pull the building permit, um, somebody may appeal your um, entitlement that you receive, or there, there are certain things that, that come up. Um, that which, pushes you out of the 180-day yeah. requirement, potentially. Yeah. So, so you wouldn't be able to meet this 90% asset test. Good. And so you're, you're, the letter that you had written mm -hmm. to the IRS prior to your testimony uh, was co-signed by a working group. Can you tell me who the working group is? Yeah, so um, working with several accountants at Baker Tilly, um, so appreciate their insight, and then um, working with several law firms, and so um, one of the law firms um, is Nixon Peabody, so Forrest Milder was, uh, was fantastic, and so he's also signed on. Um, so yes, both Baker Tilly, Nixon Peabody, and then there's been some others behind the scene helping out as well. Good, so, and how were your discussion points received by the IRS? What was the what was the feel in the room while you were giving them? Did, you, did it fall on deaf ears or were they receptive? Oh, I guess you, you mentioned yeah, earlier you were, had some follow-up questions yeah. um, regarding the 180-day rule um, in regards to you know partnerships versus versus individuals. Yeah, so they were very interested okay. in in just how um, the, the evolution of the industry from pre first set of regs then post set of regs and then they were just interested in in, um, in that point and then they also asked questions about um, do you think you know along the lines of do you think more capital would come in would investors be interested would um, would this help with the timing and the 180 days and so we talked a little bit further about that and part of my comment is is timing will always be a challenge with this incentive right. and I think um, being able to I always say, you know, begin with the end of mind. So being able to know where you want to end up helps you be able to plan what you need to do to get there. Um, and so I think uh, just getting more, um, if we're able to get this, fi uh, I don't even say fixed, but if you're able to allow this provision, you would have more capital coming in as an individual. Um, and then these individuals could figure out how they could either go into a fund or create their own fund. Right. It seems to me, just from everything I've read and what what I'm hearing is that the, the regulators want this program to succeed. Um, I don't think they want people to take advantage of it, so they don't want the rules to be too lax, obviously, but yeah. I, I, they seem to be open to hearing a lot of feedback and incorporating that into the next tranche of, of guidelines. I know they received a lot of feedback. Yeah. I think they got over 150 or so yeah. comment letters. And how many uh, speakers were there at the testimony? 20-something? 20 20, I think they were about 21. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think... So the administration really wants this uh, incentive to be successful and to work. And, and I, I give you just one point. They had an executive order that President Trump issued where he really put his full administration support behind it and, and, and really wants to tie in 
on the other policy levers that he has um, for all the different agencies. And that's and so, when he created the, the White House Council. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And so it's bringing in, you know, what does HUD need to do? Um, what does um, the, the Ag Department or other departments need to do? Because a lot of the commentary has been around um, housing, but th this really isn't or about urban development. And so this isn't uh, intended to be an urban development incentive. It's, it's really intended to attract capital to areas both urban, exurban, and rural. Mm -hmm. And w what do you expect out of that second tranche of regulations? They're, they're going to come out any day now, I think. Uh, possibly by the time this podcast airs, they will be out. We're, we're recording this on the afternoon of April 3rd, and, and, and it's been it's been a couple or three weeks, I think, since, mm -hmm. since the regulations were submitted to the White House for approval. Um, but so what do, with that said, what do you expect out of that second tranche? Yeah, so really they could come any, what I've heard is any time from now until mm -hmm. maybe the end of April. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I think there's going to be uh, several topics covered, uh, the first of which is definition of an active trader business. So um, defining in, in order for um, your partnership corporation to be able to know whether you're meeting the test to be a qualified opportunity zone business. Um, and quite frankly, Jimmy, you and I could probably sit here for the next five minutes and, and you know, do something that's logical, like, oh yeah, you know, act trader business should be this, this, and this. But it's, it's just really important that um, the kind of four corners of this incentive are, are created so people really know whether they're inside or outside the box. Um, so that's one. The second is um, the issue of the gross income test. So 50% of the gross income being generated in the zone. And so as um, your listeners probably recall, there was not a geographic requirement in the legislation. In the first set of regulations, the words in the zone were added to this provision. And this provision is whether a, um, a project or business qualifies as a qualified opportunity zone business. So adding the word in the zone, many of us would then go to think, well, this really incentive on the operating business side is only going to apply to, say, restaurants or real estate. And I don't, I don't think um, that was the policy intent, and I don't think that's really where the regulators are going to go. Um, so I'm hopeful that this will be um, interpreted in a way that tries to prevent bad actors where somebody sets up a 500 square foot office um, in a zone but their real offices are in midtown Manhattan. Right, okay? right. But on the other hand, having that technology company that um, has employees officing out of the zone and they sell um, maybe overseas, you know, to me that, that's really attracting jobs to an area and, and you know, and that's terrific. Um, so I'm hopeful that we'll, um, we'll meet, uh, be able to meet that standard. Yeah, at the end of the day, the rule needs to be crafted such that it, it allows businesses that are doing the right thing, creating jobs yes. in, the, in the community, in the, in the opportunity zones that they're located in. Yeah, exactly. So however they can get to that. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, you know, I'm hopeful it's, they'll do it. Well, and, and they're, you know, the regulators, they cannot, you know, they, they cannot write the legislation. And right. so they're, they're limited in what they can do. And, and if something needs to be legislated, it has to come from um, the other branch. And so, but I'm optimistic that they can um, interpret it and, and be able to define it in a way that's more workable 
um, than, you know, than really just for real estate or um, really local operating businesses. A couple other things that um, I think might be addressed are, is an idea of interim gains. So what happens um, if a fund starts to have um, capital events or sell off assets or these kinds of interim gains before the fund um, is sold? and um, debt financed uh, distribution. So you build your building um, with a construction loan, you refinance, you have debt, um, the ability to distribute uh, um, debt proceeds. So first of all, can you do it? Um, second of all, uh, what's the tax treatment of that? So that's something a lot of investors are particularly interested in because when you think about these long-term holds, and if you're in a GPLP structure, then odds are your promote is based on an IRR calculation. And so being able to distribute proceeds early really helps the IRR. And not to mention, you know, people would like um, some capital upon really hitting some milestones. Um, other comments around um, unimproved land. So there's just some technical things about being able to improve um, land. And, and then um, treatment of carried interest, um, which, you know, um, not sure how that will land, but I'm, um, we'll see. I'm not entirely optimistic. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, optimistic about some things, but maybe not about others. Exactly. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see when they come out. Uh, so, there, yeah, those are some good points uh, for, for us to think about when, these, when, these, uh, when the next set mm -hmm. comes out, some good points to, to look for. You mentioned several minutes ago that you have a passion for community development. So mm -hmm. I want to talk to you a little bit about that and ask you what has the Opportunity Zone policy done so far for, for community development, for, for redeveloping emerging communities? Or, you know, it's early days, so what, what do you expect out of the policy in the coming years? Yeah, so what I'm really interested in is there used to be really silos of impact investing and then market rate investing and everybody stayed in their silos and I think what is fantastic now is really to me opportunities on investing is impact investing and, and this is an incentive that um, really um, seeks to attract capital um, to these areas and, and I think um, and I think there's been some very creative um, structuring done in order to uh, couple LIHTC and, and I know people are working on coupling new market tax credits in order to um, bring this capital to projects that have a capital gap. Um, so meaning um, a, a building may cost $50 million to build and if you lease it up and you value the building on a cap rate it might be worth 40 and so you have a $10 million capital gap and so that's where you need um, some type of um, uh, public assistance, whether it's through LIHTC, new market tax credits, or some other tax credit type. Um, but then there's ways to also bring in the Opportunity Zone capital as well, um, should you need equity as well. And so I think these types of layering and structuring to really help, um, um, help a lot of these projects in the lower income communities go, I think to me is, is really, really exciting. So I think there's an opportunity to have more projects that may have taken longer to move forward, to have those projects move forward. And I think there's, since there's so much attention to this incentive, 
there's a lot of community stakeholders that have um, become much more engaged in the process. And, and I think that's exciting, people getting um, uh, very passionate and, and starting to participate in, in the communities at a, in, you know, in a very significant level. Yeah, it's kind of, I guess the, the OZ program's brought a spotlight to impact investing in yeah. a way, and, and it's encouraged more participants mm -hmm. to stick their toe in the water a little bit more. Maybe those who have only done market investing in the past, maybe they're doing a little more impact investing these days uh, with the Opportunity Zones program, and helping to fill that funding gap or that capital gap on some of these projects. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's important to recognize that these, um, you know, since you have investors that are selling appreciating assets, they need to have an appropriate risk-adjusted return in order for them to harvest their gains and to go into a fund. Mm -hmm. um, but I think given the tax benefits, you have the ability to, um, for them to invest in projects that um, may not underwrite to the highest market return. Um, so that, that's first of all. Um, but then the interesting kind of twinning of different tax incentives or even utilizing, there's been a number of other states who've, who've said we have all these other economic development tools and we're now going to focus in on opportunity zones and layer in. So there's ways to then invest in projects that may have had a difficulty getting started uh, by using other economic development tools in addition to opportunity zone investments. Yeah, they can stack or, or twin yeah. other incentives as well. I've heard the technical term mush as Mush, well. I haven't heard yeah. that one before. <laughs> I had a guest on uh, the podcast a couple months ago who spoke about twinning uh, historic tax credits yeah, with yeah, opportunity zones. Exactly. That, was, that was an interesting case as well. Um, so the opportunity zones policy, we're in the early days here, mm -hmm. and we've had some people move into the market before the regulations are final just because they have to in a way mm -hmm. for a couple of reasons one because they want to get in on the ground floor mm -hmm. and two because that 180 day clock starts ticking um, pretty quickly but I would imagine you've seen some mistakes being made because mm -hmm. people are rushing in can you share with me some of the some of the biggest misconceptions of the program and biggest mistakes you've seen being yeah. made in these early days well I, I would say my I really talk about the misconceptions sure. um, because I, you know, while I may think something is structurally done as a mistake, mm -hmm. the, I, I won't be proven right until 10 years from now. So, <laughs> that may be true. Um, so really the, the two mis um, misconceptions are number one is this idea that um, the data that was used for this incentive was 2010 data. Um, so that's myth number one. Um, the reality is, is that, and, and you can look this up on the Treasury website, is that they use data from the American Community Survey from 2011 to 2015, which is kind of the you know mid-year census. Right. So, and but they use when they reference 2010, they're using the um, 2010 boundaries, okay? But they're using the 2011 so the, the, to 2015. The, the, the 2010 census tracts, the actual geographies on the map. Yeah. But the data is from from 20, the five years, 2011 to yeah. 2015. I think there's some that are 2012 to 2016 in some cases, but the could, most, but, I've, but, I've but the vast majority the were defined using the 2011 to 2015. Yeah, and so that, and that's really the best data that was available. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so that that's number one because um, some folks just that's talk interesting. About that's an interesting point though. This data is not nine years old. Correct. It's only, it's only you know a few years old. Yeah, and 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 not to mention, look, 
you know, the governors who designated their zones were working with their state legislators and, you know, and, and, and folks who were involved on designating the zone had, um, you know, they're, they're the boots on the ground. And so um, I think there was, again, the, the data was the freshest that they had. The people involved were knowledgeable about these areas. But oftentimes when I, I talked to um, the heads of the economic development agencies or, or the governors themselves, there was a desire to provide different kinds of um, or different types of census tracts as their zone. So those census tracts that may have already had some level of a development, and then also those census tracts that are deepest in need, because the idea is that if you um, attract some capital, that you know that capital may continue to invest more and more and more. Um, so I think that's misconception number one. And the second misconception is this idea that deals are not being done and investors are waiting on the sidelines. And that's what you read in um, all these articles. And I think that's why it's fantastic, Jimmy. You, you're doing what you're doing because you're, you're talking with people who are doing deals. Um, whereas if you just you know, look at the latest news article, what you'll really read about is all investors are waiting on final regs and, and you know, nobody's really quite comfortable. And you know, it's kind of a wait and see. And, and a lot of them are. But 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 there are a lot who who are playing already. Yeah, who, and, who who have more plain vanilla deals maybe and aren't waiting for the final regs. Yeah, well, kind of two things. Number one mm -hmm. is there's never going to be final regs, so there's going to be regulations that are issued, you know, all the way up through 2026 and maybe even afterwards, um, because this will continue to be refined as more information is needed. And so I really think the investors who are saying that are investors who need to read more about deals being done before they get comfortable. Um, but I, I firmly believe with this next set of regulations, there's really going to be enough information in the marketplace for investors to be able to act. Um, Treasury and the IRS are never going to give us a recipe for how to invest with an opportunity zone. Um, and, and it's just because of all the different fact patterns that everybody has, it's just impossible to do. So, so when I, whenever I speak at, on panels or, or talk with um, folks you know, such as yourselves and members of the media is to just talk about that deals are being done, investors are allocating capital, investors who have significant amounts of gains are allocating capital. There's lots of investment banks. Um, the investment banks are looking at putting more funds or their platform or they're in the process of launching funds on their platform. And when these regulations come out, I'm optimistic that um, more traditional um, high net worth investors will have the ability to also use this incentive as well. Yeah, I hope you're right. And, and you're absolutely right. Deals are being done. Mm -hmm. Funds are raising capital. Investors are starting to to plow their capital gains into these opportunity zones, absolutely. Um, there are some that are waiting on the sidelines, like I mentioned. Oh, yeah, but, absolutely. But, but yeah, no, it, it, this program is off and running as we speak. Yeah, and I find just on that point, I find the investors who say I'm waiting on, on the regs, they're, they can't really articulate what they're waiting for. Um, because I say, well, you know, what are you waiting on this? You know, are you waiting on the debt finance distribution? Are you waiting on, you know, wh what are you waiting on? Let's talk about that. Um, and it, it's just, they just think that there's a point in time when it becomes final. Yeah. And so I, th so I think if, if they're able to articulate what they're waiting on, then that's great um, because then, then we can really hone in on it and, and focus on it and, and be able to answer that question. Um, or be able to tell them, look, we will never know that answer. 
So we'll have to assign some level of risk to it and decide whether you're comfortable moving forward. Um, but a lot of the investors I talk about who say I'm waiting on it, it's, it's just they're, they're really waiting to get comfortable. Sure, yeah, no, I think that is it, just reaching a certain level of comfort. And I'll admit I'm guilty myself of referring to final regs, in air quotes, yeah. well, <laughs> on, on this podcast from time to time. And I think what I'm really referring to is just that, that I think that third tranche of yeah. guidelines that we're expecting toward the end of this mm -hmm. year, um, because that'll be as final as it gets yeah. for most people. That, I think when that happens, it'll be when, when those people who are waiting for more uh, a higher comfort level will, will start uh, dipping their toe in the water, because that'll be the point where um, those will be final, at least for 2019. I think mm -hmm. anything after that will be just kind of um, just clarifications. The, the, yeah, clarifications. It won't be like, uh, you know, 50 or 80 yeah. page long. <laughs> I don't well, know how long the last one was. I think it was 70 pages yeah, or so. Yeah, I think this one's going to be a book. It might be. Like it might be. Close to, I think it's going to be. So long. We'll, have a, we'll have a book coming in the next few weeks, and yeah. then we'll have another book toward the end of the year. But that'll be it in terms of books, right? Because yeah. then the further clarifications that'll happen down the road will be uh, just little clarifications, not not 80 page. Yeah, and I think after this next set of yeah. regulations, um, and then also with the timing of the incentives starting to decrease by the end of the year, I think there's going to be a significant amount of interest. You're going to be the most popular guy in town, Jimmy. Because, I hope so. <laughs> well, there's just going to be so much activity, yeah. I expect, um, starting this summer. Good, good. Well, you'll be popular yourself, too. Oh, well, so, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I wanted to talk to you um, about your position on the board of the Opportunity Zone Association of America. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, tell me about your role there, and also tell me what, what is that organization? What do they do? So the Opportunity Zone Association of America, OZAA.org, um, they're a new trade association uh, that's formed around the Opportunity Zone industry. And so really what we try to do is strike a balance between um, including uh, attorneys, um, sorry, attorneys, accountants, fund managers, and also deal sponsors and, and those in the impact space and really try to represent the whole ecosystem in this industry. And so I joined the board. Um, it's being chaired by a gentleman named Kyle Walker who actually has a new um, technology company in Opportunity Zones. It's Alt-X, I think, is that right? Or? Um, yes, yes. Yeah. So I met him Agorax, a, a, a yeah. few weeks. Uh, Agorax, okay. Yeah, so yeah, he's I, met, I met him a few weeks ago at a, at a conference in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. and so they, um, so the OZAA, we have an executive director. Um, we have uh, initial founding sponsors, and we're just starting to open it up to membership. And so if your listeners are interested, um, they can go either email me or go to um, the website or just email info at. OZAA.org. Um, and so, it, again, what we're seeking to do is, is really try to share information uh, about this new industry as well as provide the feedback loop to the policymakers and the regulators about what the industry um, is, you know, what's happening in the industry. So it's really a, a significant educational component as well as, um, I would say, you know, an advocacy educational component with the stakeholders. Yeah, so a lot of what you're doing through Javelin 19 is, yeah. as well, in, in, in a way, doing the advocacy work that you're doing there mm -hmm. as well. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about Javelin 19 before we, before we end our conversation here? Um, I think you touched a little bit at the, at the top of the conversation uh, who, your, who your clients are and what you're doing for them, but, but how are you advising um, investors? How are you advising 
yeah. family offices in these early days? What, what are you telling them exactly? So um, primarily it's families that have gains or about to realize gains. And what they're trying to do is, you know, some know exactly the, you know, where they want to invest. And it's primarily in real estate, but some want to also have some um, exposure on the operating business side. Um, so some know exactly where they want to invest, the size of the project and what they want to do. There's others who um, really need to, we need to develop what the investment strategy is. And so I have a process that um, I take the investors through to develop their investment strategy, while at the same time starting to show them deals so that together we can refine it and so that the subsequent deals that they see are um, more in line with the types of investments they want to do. So the first of which is developing the investment strategy. The second is um, finding um, investments that fit the strategy either to acquire or to provide LP capital for. Um, and then the third component is um, execution. So helping them execute in a way that comports with, um, with this incentive. And so what we'll also do is hire accountants and lawyers to- Make sure they're following all the rules, right? Correct, yeah. yeah. And, but what they're kind of along the way is um, being able to make sure that they know what's happening on, um, you know, on the regulatory front, what's happening with this incentive and which deals would fit, which wouldn't. Um, and then once we get to the execution, helping them um, execute their investments and, um, and then, you know, I'm in conversations now about whether they want um, some ongoing asset management. That's something that I can help them with or not, whatever would uh, fit with their business plan. Good. So a little bit of everything almost. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's really, you know. You have expertise in a lot of areas. Yeah. So it's it's really the acquisitions, you know, finding investment opportunities that, that fit an investor profile and executing it um, and and being responsible for it. So there's a lot in my career, which is eating what you kill. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's you know nowhere to hide. You have to live with the investments that you make. Absolutely. Uh, that brings me to my ne next question. Uh, I want to get from you. I ask this of all of my guests mm -hmm. toward the end of the conversation. What's the most memorable investment that you've been involved with over the course of your career? Is there anything in particular that stands out? Yeah, so it would have to be the, an early investment that we did with Javelin 19, um, which was a four-acre assemblage in downtown Durham. And the reason it was memorable is while I was in grad school, I had identified the site as just you know it's such an interesting um, site because it's a, one of the largest sites you could assemble um, in closest proximity to downtown, but in between Duke and downtown Durham. Um, the site was actually the source of a lot of blight, and so um, so it was I would say highly targeted for for redevelopment. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it was through my involvement, I was very involved in Duke University's um, arm in the community, so their community development arm. And so it was through that involvement that, was, that I was able to develop a rapport with the owner of the site. Um, and then ultimately, so that, you know, that, that kind of started in 2004, um, and then ultimately uh, was able to purchase the site from the owner, and that was in like 2010 or 2011, uh, and then brought in a partner as um, my 90% partner, and then we did a, a joint venture to develop 340 apartments. And so to me, it was very, very memorable because it was impacting a, a community that I had cared about and spent so much time in the community, and, and then it was just so well received um, because we were um, taking a, a blighted hotel as well as two 
um, automobile uses, um, auto repair shops, and turning it into 340-unit uh, apartment building and kind of fill a missing tooth in um, the development towards downtown Durham. Oh, that's great. And uh, many years in the making, it yeah, sounds like, too. Yeah, so I'm hopefully, you know, I, after that project, I said, I hope it doesn't take me 10 years to do every project, <laughs> so. I hope not. I hope yeah. not. Uh, well, before we go, could you tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and Javelin 19? Great. Um, so the website's javelin19.com. So that's javelin, J-A-V-E-L-I-N, the number one, the number nine.com. Um, I'm very active on Twitter and LinkedIn. So um, my handle's at Jill Homan, J-I-L-L-H-O-M-A-N. And also on LinkedIn, just look for Jill Homan as well. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah, excellent. Well, fun. yeah, thanks, thanks for coming on. And for my listeners, uh, I'll have the show notes page for this episode on the Opportunity Zones database website. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And you'll find links to all of the resources that Jill and I discussed on today's show there. And I'll have links to her LinkedIn account and her Twitter account and to javelin19.com as well. Jill, thank you so much for taking some time today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to join you at the conference today. Absolutely, yeah. It should be a good one. Thank yes, you. Yes, thank you. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.